Welcome to Imperfect World. I am your host, Christopher Hobson. A central part of the promise of digital technologies lies with what big data can reveal and tell us about the world. Supposedly identifying patterns, dynamics, things that we cannot see with the naked eye. In this episode, I speak with Sunha Hong, a scholar who's been questioning such claims, instead suggesting that the, what big data is able to achieve is far less impressive and more banal. Unsurprisingly, imperfect humans tend to produce imperfect technologies. And so we end up collecting and using flawed incomplete data, which then produces flawed incomplete models, which are then used to guide our behavior. The result is a warped feedback loop, one in which reality is forced to fit with a faulty and fictionalized image. Our conversation is one that challenges the myth of the inevitable advance of such technologies. From Hong's perspective, big tech offers a small vision of the future. And what he instead calls for is a more open and creative approach to thinking about how the world can be and what role digital technologies can play. For more information, please check my Substack, imperfectnotes.substack.com, and make sure to subscribe to the Imperfect World podcast series. I can be reached at info.hobson at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. So I thought as a way of starting, uh, I was recently reading something by uh, Byung-Chul Han, a mm-hmm. I think South, South Korean-German scholar. And he was talking about, I think the article was called um, Dataism and Nihilism. And mm. he wrote, Data alone yields neither meaning nor truth, nor does it make the world more transparent. Quite the contrary, the world today seems more opaque than ever. We find it increasingly difficult to distinguish between what is important and what is not. We optimize ourselves without really knowing what purpose this optimization serves. So I thought this quote would be a good point to start because I think it connects to some of the themes and arguments that you develop in your own work on uh, the consequences of of increasing reliance on uh, big data and related technologies. Yeah, absolutely. And and I'm, I'm most struck by the beginning of that statement um, where Han talks about data and meaning, because I, I would say that it's not just the case that data doesn't provide meaning on its own. Data also actively disavows or runs away from the question of meaning. Um, and to an extent, we find that rooted in the entire history of computational technologies and, and even the very modern idea of information, right? One of the legacies that we have, of course, is Claude Shannon um, and Hartley's Law of Information, which initially defined information as a reduction of uncertainty, um, but it did so by basically ignoring any meaning that the information could have. So it was a purely quantitative question as to, it was literally a problem of if you call someone and the line is bad and you only hear three words out of 10, uh, which three words would you need to hear to try and guess what they're saying, right? So, So they would assign the value of information in this purely quantitative way and deliberately get rid of the problem of meaning because that's not what they were looking for at the time. And what we've done since then, and this is often the history of ideas around computation and reason, is we take that very specific idea and then universalize it and started saying this is how information works or should work everywhere. So I think historically and theoretically, there is a flight from the problem of meaning. Um, There is this determination to say, we don't care about meaning. Um, All we care about is 
the ability to draw certain calculative uh, conclusions that we can turn into manipulative action. We see that when Norbert Wiener and cybernetics turns away from the questions of metaphysics and meaning and say, we just care about the feedback loops in the system. Um, we see that in the big data revolution, right? This kind of loud proclamation that there is the end of theory. We don't need theory. We don't need to know why things happen. We just need to know that there is a correlation and that happens. And correlation becomes this kind of magical word that supposedly explains every social phenomenon or human phenomenon. So. I think that's the, the we're dealing with the consequences of, of that decision that has been taken again and again over the last 100 years or so, where we say meaning doesn't matter, but of course it does, right? Whenever you then deploy these technologies into an actual social situation, people care about meaning. It turns out it is quite important. And this, this juncture between the machines and databases and algorithms around us that don't care about meaning or purport not to care about meaning. And then the problems we face, which are problems of meaning. Um, and I think that's where we have these problems of communication between the tools that we use and the problems we're trying to solve. I think also one of the things you're pointing to is the way that so the knowledge we we then produce and rely upon is what we're capable of producing, right? So we can't we use um, what data we have, and that data might be an imperfect reflection of the actual experience, or it may be kind of incomplete. So mm -hmm. I can track how many how many steps I've walked per day on my, on my phone, and that might be able to tell me how much I have physically moved in some limited way, but it doesn't say anything about that experience. Right? Was I mm -hmm. walking walking around a, a cell where I'm locked up? Or was I walking around um, <laughs> somewhere in nature and reflecting upon the beauty of the world, and um, you know, thinking thinking about and discovering new experiences? Right, the actual even the basic experience of of, of steps being counted on on the phone can uh, convey really really different realities and and meanings. Um, and in the same way, right? So we we both work at, at universities. So we we very much know the the measures that we use to say track the performance of uh, students or or colleagues is you know like the, the number of articles or the number of words, right? These become measures we use, but they they don't necessarily actually tell us much about. The quality or the significance, um, and so you end up with this kind of reduced uh, rendition of, of, of reality and experience. Absolutely, I mean, universities are always a great example because any anyone who's ever worked at a university knows that the university possesses almost no um, decent metrics to measure anything of importance, whether it be student learning, student satisfaction, faculty quality. All of those things we might as well often roll a random number generator. Um, and, and in fact, this is the point made by um, a computer scientist in Princeton called Arvind Narayanan. Um, he had a talk that went viral a couple of years ago called AI Snake Oil, um, where he made the point that most of the applications we see today that purport to use AI to solve a social prediction problem like predicting if somebody will commit a crime, um, they are often fundamentally flawed, fundamentally um, bogus, because they're trying to predict something for which we do not have the right kind of data or models. Um, and one of the points that he made, and, and one of the questions there is, well, why do people buy all of this stuff? And, and one of the points that he made was, well, there are certain domains in our society where the existing tools we have for measurement and judgment, we already know that they are deeply flawed, 
right? So when it comes to trying to judge who would be an excellent employee at a company um, or how attentive your students are in class, we are essentially rolling random number generators right now. We have such poor tools right now that we are more likely to put our faith in the newfangled AI tool that maybe it will do better than the mess that we currently have. Um, it's in a similar way that everybody welcomed Uber because people thought at least it couldn't be worse than taxis. Um, but the issue with this is, of course, that there is a sort of an underlying mysticism about data. There's an underlying myth, for example, that the data is out there. Um, it is raw, it is pure. And if somebody can go out there and mine it from the earth, then it is going to give you a nugget of truth that you can build this around. But historically, it's not that we discover a gold mine of data and then use it to change the way we make decisions. It's more like people who have the money and the power to do so decided that they need certain kinds of data to justify their decisions or to enact a new managerial system. So they say, we need this data to do what we want. Um, and so we are going to produce that one way or another. Um, you, you began with the example of exercise tracking and you talked about steps taken. And, and of course there's a funny and quite famous story there, which is most of these tools use a heuristic called the 10,000 steps. And we all know this now, right? This idea that we're all supposed to take 10,000 steps per day. Um, and actually the origin of that, as far as we can tell, is a Japanese pedometer company in the mid 20th century. They wanted to sell pedometers, those little devices you wear on your belt and it tracks how many steps you take. And they thought it might be catchy to call it a manpogi, which just means 10,000 steps. Um, and so they didn't have any scientific basis, as far as we know, for deciding on 10,000. But this thing then becomes such a, a, a useful data point because it was so attractive to think that there was a magic number of steps we should take that it lives on for 50 years until a company like Fitbit comes in and say, yeah, we're going to give you the new tools to measure the 10,000 steps. So the technology has improved, um, but the kind of uh, uh, science, pseudo-scientific mysticism um, underneath it hasn't changed one iota. So there's this kind of weird relationship we have with measurement. And in, in economics, um, there's something called Goodhart's law. Um, and there's a essentially identical law in public policy called Campbell's law. And what these laws basically say is, the way I would put it is, when the measure becomes the target, the measure starts to corrupt what is measured. Right. We start the we, we take our eyes off the ball and we start figure uh, looking at the score and trying to gain that instead. In my book, I use the example of sex tracking, um, which I think is easy to grasp because people see the ludicrousness of it. Um, when we start to get all these tracking tools, people say, what else can we measure? And there was a tool, it's defunct now, uh, but there was a tool called Spreadsheet. It was an app you could download on your phone. Um, it, and you had to leave the mic on and put it on your bed because it would essentially listen to you while having sex. And then it would deliver you to you some metrics such as decibels per minute, uh, um, no, average decibel rate and thrust per minute. Now, clearly, these are quite meaningless metrics when it comes to trying to learn anything about your sex life. It's not going to tell you anything meaningful or uh, possibly interesting to some people, but nothing meaningful. The only reason this app was measuring those things is because that's what was easy to measure using the various sensors that come in your smartphone, right? So we see a movement where it's not about saying, what is sex or what is anything? Let's measure what is meaningful. Rather, you invert that relation and they're saying, let's just produce the easiest or cheapest measurements available. And then we can figure out how to market it or sell it or justify it. And I think that happens far more than we like to think, um, even in the more serious and expensive uses of data. Yeah, I think you hit upon a really a couple of really important ideas there. So 
we tend to gravitate to what uh, data points are easily available, easily quantifiable. Uh, also, there's this this kind of allure of what of the that comes with the use of numbers that somehow the these are objective and if we can just produce some number or some score it it will either be objective or will appear objective uh, and you know, one of the i think one of the most really the really powerful uh, techniques within the social sciences is is the, the the really basic technique of genealogy and of tracing the way that ideas and certainties and practices which we now take as take for granted and we don't think about often have very arbitrary beginnings and the the meaning and value that we now assign to it uh, these are more historically sedimented and not a reflection of any underlying uh, significance that, that justifies its current place. So I think the example you give about uh, steps per day is, is, is a really good one. This is not because of some carefully thought out scientific process. Right? And the, another example that I always remember is uh, the UN ODC, which is for drugs and crime, basically mm -hmm. when they were first trying to come up with some type of estimate for the uh, amount of uh, illegal production of, of narcotics, well, the problem is how do you measure something which is illicit, <laughs> right? So, you can't you can't go out and poll all the um, cocaine producers and ask them <laughs> how much how much they've produced in the last year, and so they have to produce all these kind of back of envelope estimates based upon uh, the amount that they've seized, the amount of um, uh, area they've discovered which has say coca crops and and then estimate but then once this estimate was given then that estimate gets repeated and gets repeated and then it gets put in infographics and then it becomes truth <laughs> and then that estimate is again is is again becomes the benchmark against which um, everything is measured uh, and so you end up with these uh, really kind of strange distortions where um, an approxima approximation, which at some point can also effectively become fantasy, then becomes determinative of reality and then reshapes reality to match that um, arbitrary image in the first place. Yeah, it's it's... I think it's always this kind of uh, shift in the role that's, that a fact can play. So, so there's this idea of there are certain facts at any given time that we will put under scrutiny because we think, well, we're going to test whether that is true or not, right? But there are also facts or beliefs or ideas that we use um, as anchors for that process. So it's like saying, if you come at it, so some people call this, uh, uh, Victor Turner, the anthropologist, calls it deep paradigms. Um, so if somebody says to you, I hold the, I, I, I believe that the sun is going to rise tomorrow in the West or East in the human sense, then they're putting it out there as something you can empirically test and prove or disprove. They're putting it up for a challenge. And then, you know, maybe they'll accept it tomorrow and say, I was wrong. The sun doesn't rise from the West. Um, but sometimes people come in with a deep paradigm that says, well, you know, the government uh, always cheats on you or, you know, people are always stupid and fall for the silliest things. That's much harder to even put up for testing because that's exactly what people use to test other things. Right. Um, and so it is sort of the grounding or the basis for everything else you do with facts. 
And I think sometimes that's what happens with a lot of our beliefs or claims around data. So this conceit, for example, that the technology will always get better over time, that, that it will always advance and progress. Um, it's a very difficult historical thesis to actually prove or disprove conclusively uh, because for that, you would need something beyond human lifespans, right? Which is the problem climate change faces, right? To conclusively uh, prove climate change beyond the shadow of doubt, you would need everybody to live for a few hundred years and experiment with alternative worlds, similar with the belief in God. Um, and so it becomes something that you need to, at some point, decide to believe in, decide to rely on. And I think we do that um, very often with this idea that technology will improve. Um, the, one of the biggest problems we face now is that when we talk about climate change, there is a school of thought that says, well, maybe in 20 years or in 50 years, surely we will have developed a technology to you know, uh, build renewable energy at much cheaper rates, or we will have developed the technology to repair the ozone hole or what have you. So it's this kind of magical belief uh, that technology will advance just in time and in just that specific way to solve exactly the problem that we needed to solve. Um, so it is fantasy thinking, but it is so prevalent on, on, across the public and policymakers because I think it relies on a deep paradigm that we are not used to questioning, which is this idea that technology does solve all of our problems over time. Well, I mean, you can also make the argument that in some ways, maybe our belief in science and technology has taken on uh, some of the traits of our previous belief in religion. And so you have the same, I mean, so, so science and technology now provide meaning and a degree of, of order and knowability in the same way that we used to rely upon a, a belief in, in uh, God or a, a higher power. I think sometimes it can be a very upsetting or um, um, upsetting or ludicrous thing for some people to hear this kind of relationship between technology and religion or technology and magic, which is partly because at a grand historical level, technology made its name by slagging off magic and, and superstition and religion and defining those things as, as uh, fantastic things. Um, but we would do well to remember that the very word technology, um, and Leo Marx talks about this, the very word technology in the modern sense was defined in the mid-19th century because people were looking for a word that could define a sense of seismic civilizational changes they thought were occurring in their time, right? The telegraph, the railroads, they thought that the world was changing in this kind of grand, almost incomprehensible way all around them, something well beyond an individual's ability to understand. And it was that sense of the ineffable or that sense of destiny that they were trying to explain and put a name to with the word technology. So from the very start, when we say technology with a big T, we are actually capturing that feeling of trans-historical or trans-individual change or something outside my ability to know. Um, and I think that's a way for us to think about it. Um, it it's not just, you know, it's not just a facile thing of technology is no more valid than magic. They are different things, but they perform a, a similar role in how we make sense of the world. Yeah, one, one of my other conversations is with uh, a scholar who's been looking at uh, understandings of technology in China and mm -hmm. you have this concept in Chinese of black technology and this is partly conveying uh, technology as kind of beyond cutting edge and so it's almost like it's from the future or impossible to comprehend. So it has a kind of magical property to it. And connecting this also to what we were talking about earlier with meaning, uh, at, at least within the major uh, tra traditions of religious thought, especially Christianity, 
you have this sense of it is impossible to completely know God's will. And so you end up in a position of humility. So you will never be able to fully see or understand God's will and God's plan. And therefore you have to accept and trust not being able to see and understand everything. And then I'm thinking about this in relation to the lure and the promise that comes with big data. So mm. the possibility of knowing and seeing all and that this, this kind of belief that, or sorry, this promise that if you get enough data, you can see the whole. Mm. Mm. And so this, this is the way of providing meaning. If there is just enough data, you will be able to see and understand the patterns and the causes and what is happening. Um, maybe could, yeah, could you talk a bit about uh, your, your thinking around, around this and, and also the logic of transparency, how that ties in? Yeah, I mean, there's always this kind of every generation of technological hype, at least in the last hundred years, has this kind of idea of just around the corner, right? Um, this this idea of in, um, impending future breakthrough. So it's always described as a kind of a radical break. Um, with everything that we've known. So we see that with uh, someone like Ray Kurzweil, um, who is, of course, famous as a prophet of the AI singularity, right? So his his career the last 20, 30 years has been saying singularity is coming and these other radical changes are coming. And when they don't come, you just push the date back a few years and say the same thing, right? Uh, just like uh, apocalyptic cult. Um, you also see that in this idea that AI is going to have this. So, you know, I mean, Elon Musk is a master at this, and 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 what he did to uh, promote Neuralink, um, if you remember, is he went around saying, "Hey, with my invention, now we know that in five years or ten years, we're not going to need language anymore because we'll all communicate telepathically." And of course, the world's media decided to report uh, this thing um, um, and and give uh, so much amplification to these claims. And what Elon Musk may or may not have known, I don't think he would have cared, is this is very much in the tradition of AI. So you go back right to the very earliest days of AI as a research field in the 50s and 60s. You go back to Marvin Minsky, the, the widely acclaimed as the father of the field. He was out there saying things like, I think this was in the late 60s, he was saying within 10 years or within a generation, the problem of artificial intelligence will substantially be solved. And of course, um, that's exactly when the AI winter happened, right? So Minsky built AI as this kind of global um, magnet for funding and legitimacy by putting those kinds of claims out there. So I think it's part of it's part of the game that they will always have these ideas of breakthroughs just around the corner. Oops, my apologies. Um, and I describe that in my book as honeymoon objectivity, because for me, it's, it, it's, it's like someone who has this honeymoon period. Uh, we say that with relationships, but also with new government and, and, you know, sport and so on and so forth. So there's this honeymoon period when a new technology and seemingly novel claims come along. And we think this time it's happening in five years or 10 years, we're really going to have objectivity with big data. That was in 2012-ish. And then within a few years, the, the shine wears off a little bit. We wake up in the morning and realize that this uh, new friend is not as new as we had been led to believe, that it shares many of the older problems and limitations. Um, and so we move on to the next one, which happens to be deep learning um, and artificial neural nets and say, that's the one that's going to finally deliver these old promises. So what happens is this kind of superficial novelty um, through which the same promises and sometimes the same people or the same companies get regurgitated again and again. 
And I think one of the reasons that we keep falling for it, one of the reasons we, we, we love this, right? We love becoming excited about the next phone or the next breakthrough, the next Steve Jobs. So, you know, one of the reasons why Elizabeth Holmes got such traction, right? We wanted the new Steve Jobs. And I think one of the reasons for that is, again, this idea that um, the belief in technology provides a way of making sense of the world, Um and, and Lauren Berlant, I think, was a master of talking about this. And, and one of the ways she put it was that we often look for a way to feel like the world adds up to something, especially on those days when it really seems like it doesn't, right? So if, exactly at the moment when we can't get a job and we are being evicted from our home, we look for some way to continue believing in the American dream. Exactly at the point when Google Glass flops or you're watching the metaverse unveiling and you realize that it is basically VR from the 80s and 90s, you look for some way and journalists call this paradigm repair, right? After an upsetting event, you say, all right, that happened. Elizabeth Holmes, that person was a fraud or metaverse, that one was a mistake. But the overall project must remain. Maybe sorry, you want wanted me to uh, go through the transparency no, as well. No, not a, no. I'm 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 just reflecting that I think I end up with a darker vision because you call it honeymoon objectivity, and my immediate response is abusive relationship objectivity. <laughs> and so that too, I promise. That I'll prom I promise I'll change. <laughs> I'll promise I'll change. This time will be different. This time will be better. And. Um, so you have this relationship of um, promising of things changing and things improving, then a continuation of the same type of patterns. And even, you know, I, I was saying this half in jest, but half serious, because it also points to the way there is a degree of um, abuse and, and kind of negative dynamic um, or acceptance of this bad relationship uh, and you, you get trapped in the same type of uh, relationship with the party that is causing harm mm -hmm. or failing to deliver on the promise. It, it is. It is abusive or toxic in a sense. And, and there's a reason why Lauren Berlin calls it cruel optimism, right? Um, this, this optimism that actually it's the optimism that you hang on to keep going where you are, to, to keep living each day, but it's also the optimism that holds you where you are in that same predicament, right? Um, and, and so I do think that there is an element that is abusive or toxic or, or you know, something else might be the appropriate term. Um, but I think, and, and that also calls to question the question of power, right? So it's not just, a, it's not a rational marketplace of ideas where we sovereign individuals decide to believe in the metaverse or believe in Google Glass because we have rationally judged the hype and uh, declared it worthy of our admiration. Um, our choices are often tightly circumscribed, um, especially um, at a moment when technology as an industry has become more centralized and more dynastic than ever. So Mark Zuckerberg will always come and apologize, right? That's another feature and say, I'm sorry, I'll learn. None of us believe that he's ever going to learn. He clearly has no interest in ever learning. Um, but we have no choice but to work with that because of the power dynamic or the economic disparity. The fact that we as humanity have, we haven't decided, but we have ended up funneling billions and billions of dollars and other resources um, to something as pointless as the metaverse. Mm. Yeah, this is a really important theme in, in my thinking and also what I'm trying to do in terms of capturing this dynamic between the way that we have agency and choice and we have the ability to, to some degree, choose how we interact with each other and the world. But our choices and our options are circumscribed and shaped by the conditions in which we find ourselves in. And in the contemporary world, so much of the way that we interact and engage with each other is through digital media. 
and everything is pointing in this continuing. And one of my real concerns is is not only a perhaps lack of awareness of the costs and ramifications of the directions that we're collective the direction we're collectively going in but also the way that there's kind of a conscious attempt to conceal or uh, put to one side the costs that come with these technologies so we're not even having a kind of a process of individually or collectively saying, okay, these are the costs that come with Instagram and these are the costs that come with Instagram also being run by the same corporation that has Facebook and that has um, WhatsApp and that will have Meta. But this is happening right and then the the costs are there but they're kind of you know it's kind of like sewage right it's 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 underneath and we may have some idea that it's kind of there but we don't see it we don't smell it um and and i really worry about individually and collectively yeah this lack of engagement with the the trade-off and the the decisions that we are collectively making and what follows from that. Absolutely. I think one of the one of the one of the themes that I it wasn't there originally, but one of the themes that I had to recognize as I as I wrote the book, for example, is um what I call this myth of the good liberal subject. Um, and that's a way for me to try and describe this kind of quandary of the individual as the unit of information processing, political participation, um, things like that. Um, so we're, we're always caught between um, a hammer and the anvil, right? On one hand, there's this expectation that you have to know, right? To combat fake news, you have to check sources for everything you read. Uh, to control, uh, to, to set a better path for platforms and these technologies, you have to control your Instagram use and, you know, like check what your kids are watching. There's always this idea that you need to know more, you need to do more. When you become the perfect liberal rational subject, then you will solve these problems for yourself and for everybody. And so you're putting this impossible expectation out there on people, right? That you need to read all the terms of service. And what if you did? You have no power to do anything about the decisions that went into that platform. Um, but, but what you are left with is the guilt. It's a very Weberian Protestant guilt, right? That you are never enough in the eyes of God. You were never diligent enough. You were never moral enough. And so you must always, your criticism or your politics is always circumscribed by this guilt that you have, this complicity that you have. Um, and, and, and in the meantime, um, what happens happens not as a result of your individual actions, but through the wider political economy and the wider priorities of Silicon Valley, um, for example. Um, but this is also related to, I think, I think there's a very dangerous distraction we have in these normative conversations about technology. And it is this idea that technology is flawed and we have to fix those flaws, that the flaws are the problem, right? So we hear it when people say, you know, Facebook came up, Facebook had good ideas, but they made some mistakes. And now there are all these problems with Facebook or with facial recognition. And I think this is misleading and dangerous because it creates the myth that it is possible to have the technology without those flaws. Right. It, it, we, it, it creates this idea that you can have Facebook without hate speech or facial recognition without bias. So that idea, again, that you can have a perfectly representative or objective technology, which is not possible. So we're made to fix our eyes on a false horizon. Um, and the other issue with that is that make improving the technology, which usually involves giving more money and time to Mark Zuckerberg and those other people, uh, 
it may not, it may actually make the situation worse, right? Um, we see this in the very American, especially debate around facial recognition. That's become a huge issue now um, since the work of Timnike Brew and Joy Bolamini called Gender Shades, right? That work showed that there is systematic racial discrimination where black faces especially um, are more likely to be misrecognized by facial recognition, right? And so then people say that's a problem. You've got to fix it. You've got to improve it. Um, and there's some and and there's a scholar called Nabil Hussain uh, who puts it really well and says, isn't accurate facial recognition worse than inaccurate facial recognition? Isn't it going to be worse in that particular case, in the especially in the U.S. case, because now the police who use them, you still have the same problem with the police. You still have the same problem with racial dynamics and stuff like that. But now they have a really, really good technology at detecting you and tracking you down. So it doesn't solve the problem to just fix the bugs or to improve the technology because you're not fixing the underlying problem of who commissioned the technology, who's using it, who's paying for it, and why did we decide to focus on facial recognition anyway? To which the answer is we we, we've focused on facial recognition for 100 years because it was initially sold to the police in the 19th century by and early 20th century by especially Francis Galton, one of the key figures of eugenics. And then even if you go to something like the 70s and 80s, it was the U.S. military funding it. Well, that again, I think, points to this example of by tracing the trajectory of these things that we take for given or assertion now, their origins are, are, are much more contingent and much less objectively um, justifiable than, than they're now presented to be. Listening to, to what you were saying, I was struck by when I was thinking through this this project I'm, I'm working on, I was uh, thinking of this famous line that Isaiah Berlin uh, took from Kant, out of the crooked timber of humanity, no straight thing was ever made. Hmm. All right, so, so. But... So much of the, the hope and expectation of technology is precisely that actually we will make something perfectly straight. Um, and so there's this sort of, again, constant promise of no, yet next time we will be able to make it perfect, right? Whereas in a way it strikes me that the lesson instead should be, first of all, uh, imperfect humans can never make perfect machines or the likelihood of making perfect machines is, is very low. Uh, but, but also that reality and experience always in some ways eludes our grasps and our abilities of, of control. And one of the things that you talked about is the way that all of these promises um, of AI and other technologies um, have failed to materialize, but then there's the next round of promises and, and, and the, you know, the belief that it's just around the corner. Looking back over the, at least, you know, the last couple of decades, you know, one way of thinking about our experience with, with the rise of, of the internet and then social media and the platform economy is precisely how little control we have over what's happening because the way that these technologies have developed is so completely different from the kind of techno-utopian ideas which were right there at the beginning of the internet. Uh, one of the things I find really powerful about uh, Zuboff's explanation or argument of, of surveillance capitalism is the way that it's contingent right? This was not the initial logic of these companies. There was a set of political, economic, social circumstances which resulted in these big tech companies adopting um, 
models which have led to this version of surveillance capitalism where our data becomes the key um, resource to be mined. But this was not inevitable uh, with these technologies and it was not inevitable that this is the way the internet had to, had to develop. Right? So I feel like the experience of, of, of the last couple of decades should instead uh, push us towards appreciating precisely how contingent it all is and how, uh, limit, how limited our capacity is to actually shape and control uh, how these technologies will be used and um, applied. I think there's some of the sketch at the, you know, I, when I talk about my research or when I talk about some of these issues, um, one of the one type of question that I always get is, well, what are we supposed to do about that? And, and isn't your views too pessimistic or too nihilistic or dystopian, right? So it's this, and I think that's a fair question actually, right? So it, it, it's a way of saying, well, technology presents us with a vision forward. If you're telling us that that vision is not going to get us anywhere good, then what should we be doing? Um, and there's multiple ways to go about that. And, and one path is a rehabilitation of ludism uh, that people like Jathan Sadowski have, have been trying to work at. Um, I do think that there are a lot of good ideas in there, right, to, to consider what are the circumstances in which we should say no to a new technological innovation. Um, and, of course, the historical Luddites weren't actually crazy people that wanted to get rid of all machines. They were far from that. Um, so so that, there's an interesting direction there too. Um, but I find myself thinking about a different, though I think complementary uh, direction, which is I don't think we should be giving up on technology. I don't think criticizing technology is a way of saying, oh, we are, uh, uh, we are flawed and we should just give up trying to fix our flaws. I don't think that's what you're saying either. I think we should be more ambitious and have higher standards of technology because they have set such low standards, criminally low standards for themselves, and they've sold that hook, line, and sinker to us. Um, let me put it this way. Mark Zuckerberg, people like him, they have more money than pretty much anybody in history. And this VR thing where you sell microtransaction NFTs, that's the best you can do with that much money and supposedly the most brilliant people in the world. How low of a standard do you have to have to sell that as an achievement? Um, and, and those stories are so common. Um, I remember one called, um, there, there was an entrepreneur called James Proud, and he was one of the kids that were selected by Peter Thiel's 20 under 20 program. So this was Peter Thiel, uh, very well known, coming in and saying, look, I'm a rich tech bro. I think that universities are useless. I think we need to find a new radical alternative way to uh, recruit geniuses who have a vision to change the world. And he picked James Proud as one of those G-Wids kids. So you'd expect them to come up with something totally different. Well, a few years later, he came up with a smart orb that you put next to your bed and it tracks your sleep and helps you sleep better. It was panned by reviewers as a fundamentally useless object that didn't work very well. And he shut it down about two or three years later, right? So this trajectory we have where we are told that these are the richest, most well-resourced, intelligent people coming up with the best of civilization. And that's what they come up with, right? L useless little gadgets that measure steps taken or sell you NFTs. So I think the big shift that we should be thinking about now is, yes, we should continue to critique technology, but also at the same time, I think we should actually be saying they are not the ambitious ones. They are not the ones with the grand visions. It, the problem isn't that they're thinking too big. The problem is that they are thinking too small and they're setting such low standards 
And actually, they are more akin to the stereotype of the well-paid bureaucrat who doesn't actually do much all day long and then tries to tell you that they are essential to civilization, right? Which is, I think, sometimes unfair on bureaucrats. Um, but I think that's exactly what Silicon Valley is these days. Um, and I think that's one of the ways in which we can say we need a better vision than this. Perhaps to follow up something we were talking about earlier in terms of this poverty of imagination of, of big tech, I, I thought this is also very much reflected in, in the logic of the way that algorithms and big data work. You know, you have this quote in your book from uh, Eric Schmidt from, from Google that people don't want Google to answer their questions. They want Google to tell them what they should be doing next. And there I was thinking about the way that the generally what algorithms tell us what to do next is what we previously did. And Adam Curtis has talked about search engines as being haunted with the ghosts of our previous behaviours. And he talks about it's always looking at patterns from the past. It's sort of a modern ghost story. Right. So you get recommended what you searched for before. And so you, you, and where you went to before and the type of things that you liked before. So you kind of get into this loop where you're being recommended and being pushed towards things that you previously uh, looked for or thought or were interested in. And that actually removes the capacity for discovering the new, the unexpected, the surprising, the different. And so the way that search engines and these algorithms work is, is really to kind of loop you into same ways of thinking and acting and, and liking. And this is also a profoundly conservative kind of dynamic. Absolutely. Um, and I'm, I, I'm conscious of time, so I'll make this sure, but, but uh, absolutely. Um, and I think actually Wendy Chun, my colleague here, um, Wendy's latest book, uh, Discriminating Data, um, I think offers um, maybe one of the most systematic takes on this problem um, where she talks about how, I mean, it's the, the, the lie, that correlation is just a neutral, universal mathematical tool. And then it remains what you do with it, right? Yeah, that, the, the, the prevalent myth. And, and the point Wendy makes is that when you think about everything as correlation, and this idea of everything as popularity is a subset of that as well, or, or those recommendation algorithms are a subset of that logic. Um, that is rooted in this love of similarity, right? And the way she puts it is that everything about our present and our future becomes a reproduction of a highly curated and selective past. So it's not even just that they stamp out the past pattern over and over again. But they pick a very particular version of the past because we've talked about how there's only so much data they can capture and there's only certain kinds of data that they're looking for. Um, and Wendy further points out how if you look at the history of correlation as a statistical tool, obviously the, the key contributor was Carl Pearson. And Carl Pearson specifically believed it, that his our political arguments for eugenics could be better developed and justified through his work on correlation and homophily, um, because, of course, this was the logic he was using to try and show that human populations should selectively replicate their own past. Um, and so whether it's that or some of the subsidiary downstream effects today, like this idea that if you watched three romantic comedies, surely you want to watch 15 more, um, I think these things, again, try to naturalize the sense that there is no outside, right? The only thing that remains is, isn't it nice to have watched these videos? Now let's watch 10 more. Um, and, and, and that's, it's this kind of continuation of the same that I think in a, in an, in, in an unintended way, it actually captures the zeitgeist of, of the times, um, that I think Han Byung-chol would be very, uh, familiar with this 
idea of fatigue society that, that he talks about, this idea that everything is stretched, everything keeps stays the same. Elections come and go, the new iPhones come and go, new technological feature visions come and go, but nothing important seems to have changed about what I'm hearing from politics or technology. So this, yeah, this actually, I, in a way, we can circle back to, to where we began and the, the quote I started with, so data alone yields neither meaning nor truth. So we are left uh, with this question of where can we look for, for meaning or truth? Uh, we've been thinking about the, the 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 kind of the lure of perfect knowledge, the the way that big data holds this this promise of a perfectly knowable world, uh, but in the process we kind of end up with this rather um, distorted or or kind of shoddy rendition um, of 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 that world, uh, but. This also leads to kind of a doubling down of the same types of behaviours and the same types of aspirations and also tends to encourage conservative ways of um, structuring society and thinking about the future. So the, I think the challenging question for, for for people like ourselves who are engaging with this critically is uh, what type of, how do we respond to this set of circumstances and what should we aspire to in terms of how we are engaging with these technologies and, and what can we hope for? in a contemporary context? I think I'm, and these are ideas I'm still working out and I may yet come back to them and disavow them, but uh, I think I'm, I'm increasingly thinking about ways in which, as I said, we can be more ambitious, we can demand more and have higher standards of technology because I do think there are powerful transformative possibilities in there. It's not about throwing all of that out, but I think at the end, it's about saying to ourselves, well, if we have such powerful tools, whether it's machine learning or something else, maybe we can get somebody other than the same five companies to try using these and, and with, the, with the resources and see what they can come up with. Maybe instead of having the same 30 dudes from Stanford sit in a room and code all day, maybe we can get other kinds of people to do the coding to, and see what they come up with. Um, and even with critique as well, right? Maybe instead of, maybe we can get more people from different places who are not all looking at the same data set and criticizing the same data set um, and, and see what they have to say about these issues. Um, so, so I do think that there is space for a lot more ambition. And I think, I think an important clarification here is that broadening shouldn't just be limited to, hey, take the same technology and just give it to women instead of men or give it to the global south instead of the global north. Um, because then I think you end up often limiting the ways and you sort of end up saying, you know, it, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If you, um, and if you say you're going to give uh, the same cryptocurrency technology or the same co exact coding uh, tools and the corporate structure to a bunch of people in the woman in the global south, then you're almost forcing them to come up with the same answers as Silicon Valley, um, or at best it becomes a one-off experiment, right? So when I say that maybe we can think about technology and technological critique from a broader group of people, um, I think that also extends to questioning that very notion of technology as something you can just package and move around, right? Um, it should look very, very different when you say, why don't we give these tools to, or, or the Silicon Valley model to someone else? I mean, we've seen that historically. We saw what a mess it is when nations around the world said, we want our own Silicon Valley. We want the Silicon Desert, or the, we want the Silicon Archipelago. We went through a bunch of those things, right? The whole smart city phase was also a way of saying, 
maybe we can create a, a we can turn land into a blank sheet of paper and then just create a kind of city that we can copy paste everywhere. We know that those things don't really get us anywhere. They are colossal waste of money. And I think it is time for us to start thinking, could the same tools or similar tools or resources um, that we give to Facebook or give to machine learning labs in the US, could they look very, very different um, if you opened up the ways in which they could be used or the kind of objectives they could have? It's, this is pretty vague, I know, but, but I think as a general orientation, I think that's what I keep coming back to at the moment as a, as a possibility. That was my conversation with Sun Ha Hong, recorded in March 2022. It was produced with the support from a grant by the Toshiba International Foundation and was edited by Peter Van Hoysen. Please subscribe to the Imperfect World podcast series and check other conversations. For more information, see my website, christopherhobson.net and my substack, imperfectnotes.substack.com. My email is info.hobson at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Imperfect World with Christopher Hobson. Thank you.